Exodus chapter 4. We have Moses still standing before this burning bush. And out of this bush, God has called him to go to Egypt and to stand before Pharaoh. God has called Moses to lead the Israelites out of their slavery, out of Egypt. And rather than saying, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Instead, we find Moses responding in a negative way. Three times Moses has protested God's calling on his life. Who am I that I should do this? Who should I tell the Israelites is sending me? What if they don't believe me, God? Well, here in verses 10 through 17, Moses continues to protest. Twice more he protests. So let's pick up reading in Exodus 4, beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so we see in this passage the fourth protest of Moses I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then having the fourth protest answered by God, just like all the others, we see the heart of Moses really come out. Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Mount Hermon, may we never respond to God in that way. May we never hear God calling us to some great work and we say, Lord, please send someone else. Now here is the plan. Uh, We are going to spend two messages on this important paragraph. Uh, This paragraph is worth two sermons. Why? First, this sermon, I'm sorry, this passage helps us to think about our own calling to share the word of God with others. Moses is not the only person who has been called to deliver the Word of God to others. You and I are called to do the work of evangelism. You and I are called to speak the truth of God to others. And yet often like Moses, we feel insecure and afraid and unwilling to go. And so the words of Moses in this passage are very helpful to us 
as we think about our own involvement in evangelism and in missions. And so since next Sunday is Harvest Sunday, and that's a time when we annually put the spotlight on that theme, uh, we're going to hit hard on that next week from this passage. But there is another reason that this passage is particularly important. And it is this. Uh, This passage, perhaps more than any other in the entire Bible, teaches us about the nature of true prophecy. This passage teaches us about the nature of true prophecy. Who is a prophet? What is a prophet to do? What is the role of a prophet? I don't have to tell you how timely that theme is. In fact, this is a theme that has been timely throughout human history. Back in the Old Testament days, the question of what is true prophecy was vitally important. Jeremiah, for example, had to regularly combat the official prophets of Judah who were claiming to be prophets that spoke for God, but were in fact speaking lies. In the early church, the issue of true prophecy versus false prophecy became a major issue. Paul had to tell the church in Thessalonica to have a right view of prophecies, not despising them, but also being sure to test them. Over and over again, the apostles warned the early churches about false prophets rising in their midst. In the second century, a man named Montanus, along with two ladies named Priscilla and Maximilla, made popular these ecstatic experiences in which they claimed that God would take over their bodies and that God would speak through them. And their teaching became very popular in the second century. More and more Christians wanted to have this special, ecstatic, prophetic experience. And when their prophecies in the name of God began to contradict Scripture, they had to be opposed by faithful pastors and churches. And so for 2,000 years, the Church of Christ has dealt with this question of whether or not there are people on earth today who truly speak for God as His mouthpiece, bringing new revelation from Him, bringing a message from God. Frankly, if there are such people around today, then we are wrong to despise them, and we are sinning if we do not listen to them. This is not a small issue. If God is speaking to us through prophets today, then we must pay attention to them, for their words are worth more than our very lives. I'm not talking about those who say, Thus saith the Lord, and then share the truths of the Bible. I'm talking about those who claim, Thus saith the Lord, and then bring to us new revelation, a new message that they claim to have received directly from God, the way Isaiah did. And Jeremiah did, and the way Moses did. And so we want to make sure we get this right. And so using this passage, I want us to look at what we can learn about true prophecy. And so our focus is on verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16. And the idea is this. We learn what a real prophet looks like. Because in this passage, Aaron is to become a prophet For Moses, just as Moses is to be a prophet for God. 
In other words, God says that Aaron's relationship to Moses is going to be like Moses' prophetic relationship to God. Just as Moses is to be God's mouth, so Aaron is going to become the mouth of Moses. Now, to show you that we're right about this, look over at Exodus 7 and verse 1. Exodus 7 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God explicitly tells us there that Aaron is to be, <coughs> excuse me, like a prophet to Moses. When God tells Moses to speak, Moses is to speak through Aaron. Now, what do we learn here about the nature of prophecy, at least as it existed in the Old Testament? Well, first we learn that a prophet was someone who spoke not their own words, but the words of God. A prophet was someone who spoke not their own words, but the words of God. Look again, Exodus 4, verses 15 and 16. Exodus 4, verses 15 and 16. You shall speak to him, that is Pharaoh, I'm sorry, you shall speak to him, that is Aaron, and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And so Moses was to put his words into Aaron's mouth. Aaron, as Moses' prophet, was to speak Moses' words for him. So most fundamentally, at the bottom of everything else, who is a prophet of God? A prophet of God is a person who speaks God's words. God takes his words and places them in the mouth of the prophet so that when God's prophet speaks, it is God speaking. What is a prophet? A prophet is the mouth of God. Now, let's take that clear and obvious principle from this passage and draw out four implications. Number one, since a prophet serves as the very mouth of God, to refuse to hear a prophet's word is to refuse to hear God himself. Again, since a prophet serves as the very mouth of God, to refuse to hear a prophet's words is to refuse to hear God himself. And obviously what we have in mind here are those moments when a prophet is speaking for God. So Moses was a prophet. But when Moses asked his wife to fetch him a cup of water, he was not speaking for God, right? But when Moses spoke, thus saith the Lord, in his office as a prophet, well, to neglect his words would be to neglect God himself. God threatened terrible things upon those who would not listen to his prophets. We're going to see this for Pharaoh. Moses comes as the mouth of God. Pharaoh will not listen. And Pharaoh pays a terrible price. Uh, We will see this in Jeremiah's day. God's people would not listen to Jeremiah. God's people would not listen to the other true prophets. 
Listen to this warning from God in Jeremiah 26, beginning verse 4. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. God said, if you do not hear my prophets, a curse will come upon you. Or listen to Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 17. This is astounding. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among the nations where I have driven them. We say, wow, God is going to bring all that upon His people. What in the world did they do to deserve such a horrific punishment? The very next verse, verse 19. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Do you see why I say it is such a serious thing? To not listen to a prophet of God. If there are any prophets that are sent by God to us in this day and age, we had better pay attention. God threatens terrible things even upon His people if they do not listen to His Word spoken through His prophets. A second implication of prophets serving as the very mouth of God is that to disobey the prophet is to disobey God Himself. To disobey the words of the prophet is to disobey God Himself. Again, we're going to see this with Pharaoh. In chapter 7, why are the ten plagues going to begin? What prompts God to begin afflicting Egypt with such terrible curses? Well, just before Moses turns the Nile River into blood, the first plague, here's what he's going to say to Pharaoh. The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus, says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. And so what was the issue? It was, the issue was not that Pharaoh had disobeyed Moses. The issue was that Moses was the mouth of God and that in disobeying Moses' words, he was disobeying God himself. A third implication. Since prophets are the very mouth of God, to abuse the prophet is to attack God himself. To abuse the prophet is to attack God himself. Remember Jeremiah, right? He was put in stocks because of what he preached. He was thrown in a dungeon because of what he preached. He was cast into a dried up well and left to die because of what he preached. 
Jeremiah's life was in constant danger because he stood for God. Let me ask you a question. Mount Hermon, why did God harden the hearts of so many Jews in Jesus' day so that they would not turn to Him and be saved? Make no mistake about it, the reason Israel as a whole did not turn to their Messiah when He came and the reason Israel crucified their own Messiah was because God hardened their hearts. Jesus openly preached this. He told the people, God is blinding your eyes and stopping up your ears so that you will not believe in Me. In Romans 11, when we get there some months from now, Paul will explain in great detail that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was because of the hardening work of God. Why? Why did God harden the hearts of those first century Jews? Answer, because it was the plan of God to bring catastrophic judgment upon Israel. It was the plan of God that His people would be given over to blindness so that He would then come in with a Roman army and put an end to ancient Israel. The temple would be once and forever destroyed. The nation of Israel that was founded at Mount Sinai would be forever eliminated. Why was God determined to bring such a judgment upon His people? What had the people done that was so offensive to God that He would give them over to such destruction? Jesus tells us in Luke 11, He says this, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Do you remember how God had told Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full? Right? He, he said, Abraham, one day I'm going to bring your descendants out of Egypt and into Canaan, and they're going to be my instrument of justice as I bring judgment on the Amorites for their sin. But he told Abraham, now's not that time, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. But when it's full, you will be my instrument of justice. Well, in the same way, Jesus said that God had given Israel over to destruction from the very beginning. From Abel to Zechariah, they had been mistreating prophets, mistreating prophets, abusing His messengers, and now the messenger, Jesus Christ, would come and they would abuse Him too. And what would the result be? Terrible judgment. Mount Hermon If there are prophets sent by God to us today, we had better not mistreat them. We had better not malign them. We had better not demean them. Do you see why it's so important that we be clear on this issue? Do you see why it matters tremendously whether or not there are still prophets today? A fourth implication. Since prophets serve as the very mouth of God, it is a very serious thing to claim to be a prophet. 
It is perhaps the most serious thing in the world to claim to be a prophet. In our age, this is what the Pope has done. The Pope claims to speak as the very mouthpiece of God on earth. Let's be honest. If the Pope is right, we owe him our respect. We owe him our obedience. If the Pope really is speaking for God on earth, we are sinning gravely by not listening to him. But if he is wrong, then the current Pope and each Pope that came before him is playing a very dangerous game. What does God demand of every false prophet? Excuse me. In ancient Israel, every false prophet was to be put to death. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, ancient Israel was a theocracy. God ruled over that kingdom in a special way. God's justice was carried out through the priests. False prophets were put to death. Today, we are not to put false prophets to death. We do not live in a theocracy. The American government does not have the authority from God to do what the priests of Israel were authorized to do. But be sure, God will bring judgment on those who dare claim to say, Thus saith the Lord, when God has not given them the words to say. Now, here is the question that often comes. Did prophecy change from what it was in the days of Moses and Aaron? Moses was considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. That's why we're talking about this at this point. Moses is lifted up as the prophet par excellence of the Old Testament. But did prophecy change at Pentecost? Did prophecy change from what it was in the Old Testament, such a serious thing, to something different in the New Testament? Is prophecy now some lesser thing? Is prophecy now something to be treated much more lightly? This is the view that's becoming increasingly popular in our day. Very good, godly people are holding on to this this new view, and it is a very new view, that claims that there is a different kind of prophecy in the New Testament than the prophecy of the Old Testament. These men teach that in these New Testament days, God still reveals truth to people for them to speak on His behalf. But they say that unlike in the Old Testament, when God puts His Word into their... See it again. I want to be very clear. Unlike in the Old Testament, where God put His Word into the very mouths of the prophets so that what they spoke, they spoke infallibly, they say in the New Testament it's different. He doesn't speak directly to them and put the words in their mouths. He simply reveals His truth through impressions or through revelations to their hearts or through visions and dreams that they then have to put into their own words. And so uh, they say a modern prophet would say something like this, I sense that God is telling me to tell you this. Or, 
I think God might be telling me to tell you this. In other words, prophecy is no, is no longer this infallible, authoritative, thus saith the Lord. They say that prophecy in the New Testament age is much more a, an infallible word from God that comes to you through impressions or visions or dreams that you then have to put into your own words and because you're a sinner and you can mess it up, you may or may not get it right. And so even when somebody comes to you with a prophecy today, you have to discern and test and say what's right and what's not. My belief, and I think I'm standing on the scriptures when I tell you this, is that that new form of prophecy is not found in the pages of the Bible. I I think that view of prophecy flies in the very face of what the Bible teaches about the work of the Holy Spirit. As I've heard Pastor Merle say so many times before, would we really expect the work of the Spirit in the New Testament to be somehow lesser than the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament? The work of the Spirit in the Old Testament worked in such a way that they were able to speak perfectly and infallibly the very words of God. Why would His work in the New Testament be something lesser, something that is now tainted by human error, Aren't these New Testament days supposed to be better and higher and greater than the Old Testament days? Does the Bible give us any reason to expect that the work of the Spirit in our days should be somehow lesser than it was in the Old Testament? And I don't think so. But not only that, in the New Testament, it is very clear that those who spoke as prophets in New Testament days understood themselves as delivering the very Word of God. So, for example, in the book of Acts, we meet a man named Agabus. And Agabus is called a prophet. And when he comes and presents his prophecy to Paul, he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit. He still claims the authority of God for his message. And by the way, when you say, Thus says the Holy Spirit, you better make sure you're speaking for the Holy Spirit. Right? Prophecy in the New Testament is not something different from the prophecy of the Old Testament. And Joel promised that when the New Testament days began, there would be a number of people, both both men and women, who would be given the gift of, of prophecy and would be able to speak on behalf of God. And sure enough, in the early church, in the pages of Acts, we see that happening. But are there still prophets today to whom we must listen, to whom we must give obedience to whom we must consider to be the very mouthpiece of God. Well, in the earlier epistles, like Thessalonians and the Corinthians, we have passages that indicate that there were prophets of God in those churches. But as the first century continues, and we look to the later letters, the later epistles, there's no longer any mention of prophets in these churches. Rather, we see more and more and over and over again the teaching that Christians are to begin to look to the teaching of those who have already come. Jesus came. He was the greatest of all the prophets. He was more than a prophet, but He he is the supreme prophet. And the Son of God spoke the very words of God. Jesus said, John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. Jesus was a prophet. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the church apostles and prophets who continued his message. 
There were people who could speak in local churches and say, Thus saith the Lord. But we're told in Ephesians that these apostles and prophets were part of the foundation of the church. Once their message from Christ had been fully spoken, there was no reason to expect a new prophet. Indeed, Jesus has spoken. Jesus came as the ultimate prophet. He spoke. He continued his message through the apostles and prophets. And now the foundational era of the church is finished. And therefore, it is no accident that the Bible ends with these words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In other words, your Bible is now complete. You do not need a further word from God. The Bible is sufficient. It is sufficient to meet your every need and to equip you for every work that God has given you. Frankly, your Bible is abundant. In other words, you already have enough words from God to keep you busy for the rest of your life. You've got more words from God than you can handle right now. Why in the world would you crave more? In your hands are words that are worth more than gold. They're better than honey. They're the best words you'll ever read. And they are the words by which your life will be judged on the last day. You are accountable before God to heed every word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Do you really want to add more? Do you think there is anything greater that God can say to you than the absolutely amazing things that He has already said to you in the pages of the Bible? Were you with us in Romans 8? Did you hear the things that God said to us there? May we stop looking for new revelation where new revelation has not been promised. And may we start cherishing and believing and obeying the revelation that we have. By the mid-60s of the first century, we no longer see any reference to prophecy as an active gift. Instead, we see Paul referring to prophecies in the past tense. We find Peter speaking of prophecies of Scripture. So he's already now taking this idea of the prophecies that were spoken, and he's referring to them as Scripture, and he includes the writings of Paul in that category. What does Peter say? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter at that point is already speaking of prophecy as a past thing and as a thing fully recorded for us in the pages of the Scriptures. And he says... Pay attention to the Scriptures. Mount Hermon, the Bible is the record of all that God has spoken through His prophets. The Bible now serves us the way Aaron served Moses. As one old Puritan said, the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bible are two lips by which God speaks to you. 
And therefore, all of our previous implications now apply to the Bible. Since your Bible is the very mouth of God, to refuse to hear the Bible is to refuse to hear God. Since your Bible serves as the mouth of God, to disobey your Bible is to disobey God. Since your Bible serves as the mouth of God, to abuse the Bible by ignoring it or twisting its words is to attack God Himself. And since your Bible is the very mouth of God, it is a very serious thing for anyone to claim that their writings or that their words should be added to the pages of Scripture. So Mount Hermon, we can say with confidence that the Bible is the mouth of God to us, and His words to us are life and peace and salvation. I'm going to close with three very brief points, just practical. Number one, be thankful for your Bibles. Dare we not forget, sorry, dare we forget that we do not deserve the Word of God? Dare we forget that the Bible is worth more than our lives? It is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit brought us to life and brought us to salvation and brought us into union with Jesus Christ. Could it be that we are unthankful for our Bibles? Could it be that we've begun to take our Bibles for granted? Have we forgotten that there were men who gave their lives, who bled so that you and I could have our Bible? Have we forgotten that special providence of God which moved men to copy the Bible book by book, paragraph by paragraph, word by word, by hand over centuries? so that it would be preserved for us. Let us love the Word of God. It is the prophetic Word for us. Let us treasure it. Number two, let us make careful, joyful use of the Word of God. Here was the great advantage that ancient Israel had over the other nations of the world. Israel had so much of God's Word, the other nations had almost none of it. What a tragedy that God gave to Israel His Word, such a precious gift, and Israel refused to heed it. Century after century, the vast majority of Israel lived in unbelief and disobedience. They played games with the Word of God and replaced its teachings with their own traditions. They chased after other gods and refused the great light that had been given to them. And because of this, God's judgment came upon them. Friends, we have been entrusted with the Word of God. This is a great privilege, and it comes with a heavy responsibility. We must be good stewards of God's Word. And the best way to honor the Word and to preserve the Word and to steward the Word is to study it and to believe it and to obey it. Let us make use of the Word of God. It is a love gift from God to us. We're fools if we don't take advantage of it. Now, Herman, we need to be struck afresh by the Spirit of God concerning our Bibles. We need to see anew how utterly foolish we are to let our Bibles sit unopened and unstudied when what we need for joy and for peace lies within its pages. Third implication. Let us support the work of those who are striving to get the Word of God to others. Since this book is now the mouth of God to this world, we need to get this book to the world. 
There are almost 7,000 languages being spoken on this planet today. Of those 7,000 languages, only 500 have a complete Bible in their language. Wycliffe Bible Translators tells us that in their assessment, there are 1,800 Bible translation works that have not even yet begun, that they need to start. Um, Let us continue to support linguists like Drew Moss and his family and others who are giving themselves to this work of getting the Word of God to others. And could it be that even one of the young people in this room, or old people, old people can do it too, could it be that God has anyone in this room who has a talent for grammar and languages that God might be calling you to invest some of your life, your time, into the work of Bible translation and getting the Word of God to others. Friends, the Word of God is your most valuable possession. It's worth more than your house. It's worth more than your car. It's worth more than your life. Love it, treasure it, use it, because it is the very mouth of God speaking to you. Let's pray.